so excited that um, Terry and Carrie Quinn are um, willing to, to get up here and share just for a couple of minutes about their experience working with couples through the Light Counseling Ministry here. Um, Terry and Carrie are just, to me, some of the most delightful people that you could hope to meet. They're very um, strong in their commitment of faith and very strong in their commitment to blessing others um, and being a blessing to them. Um, I um, don't know what all they want to share with you, but I just thought it might be inspiring to hear from one of our couples about the, uh, the way that they see God work um, as they make themselves available. So um, why don't you guys just share a little bit about what you've experienced both personally and in terms of what you've seen in some of the, with some of the couples. Whichever one of you wants to start, go first. Let me just, you know, introduce who we are. Uh, we've been married 32 years, yeah. and there's been many more than 32 arguments, okay? So, <laughs> so I, I was listening to Carrie today, and I'm going to try and figure out what that, uh, what she call it, to get, to, to de-escalate it down. I'm going to come up with that. You know, something, something that will bring that back down, so... <laughs> But um, we have three children, and we've been at the Fellowship of the Woodlands for about 12 years now. Um, our kids are old, older, and uh, they've left the, the home, and so we're, we're empty nesters. And we felt that uh, God had called us to take the things that we've learned over raising our kids and being a couple and see if we could help, you know, give that back to people that are going through that at this point. So we've met with about... Four, over 40 couples over the last three and a half to four years and uh, gone through that each week. What's very, very helpful is uh, we get supervisions from Dr. Looney and his staff so that they can help, help us as we go through each couple and give us advice and, and helpful hints as to how to go through that. Well, what I'll do is I'll let Carrie share a, a one or two and then I'll share one or two of our instances with couples. Good afternoon. Um, I was just thinking about one of the couples that we met with, and they were a very young couple. They were in their early 20s. They had been married a couple of years, and they came to us just desperate. She said her words were, I just want a knight in shining army, armor. I want him to be my protector, my valiant warrior. And he was very, very passive. And with sharing with him and speaking and learning about them, we found out their issue was boundaries. And what it was, was there were too many family members in their marriage with them. And they were having lots of issues. And they didn't know that's what it was because he was so passive and they loved their family so much. He had quite a few family members way in the middle. And she had a couple that were in the middle, too, not quite as bad as his. And so um, we kind of walked them through that, and we would try to take them through homework. And they didn't want to do homework. They were just scared. They didn't want to try to interact with each other. They didn't want to interact in a different way with their families. They didn't know how. So we took them through steps of that. And it finally came to the point where they were able to even talk with their family members in loving ways after prayer, prayer with us and together alone and all this. And so um, I think she thinks she has her knight in shining armor now. This was a good one. This ended good. And uh, months later, we ran into them at church, and they hugged us and visited with us. And even her mother was with them, and her mother was crying. You saved their marriage. And she had to be one of those who even stepped back a little. And no, we didn't save their marriage. God did. But this ministry 
really helps those people. It really does. And we were fortunate to be a part of that. One of the things I want to just remind each of you, and that is what we found is very helpful is, is that we know that marriage is an institution that God has created, and it is a very powerful institution, and is a relationship with each other and with a relationship with him. And so we know that when we go in to meet with a couple, that Satan is after that couple, and we know it is a spiritual battle, and we recognize it as a spiritual battle as well. So we make it a point to pray for that couple before we go into a session and ask the God to be there with his Holy Spirit and that power because it's God who's going to touch their hearts. It's God that's going to change them, and we're just being used as an instrument to allow God to move in their lives. We're, it's a safe environment when we meet them in, in our Christian counseling room. And so they come in, and they already feel the safety of the Holy Spirit there, which gives them the ability to not be had that fear or that being scared so they're able to open up and therefore being broken and the healing taking place. And I met with, uh, we met with a couple. And in the opening session, we usually meet with them together so that we, it's very important to get that connection with that couple because you want to be able to be there for them and they, you want them to be able to have that connection with you. So we were meeting with the couple and it came clear that they weren't spiritually connected. So the next week, we broke into separate sex sessions and I started talking with the young man. We started exploring where he was spiritually. And you know that through that session, he was able to realize that he did not have a relationship with the Lord and he would, didn't understand where his wife was coming from. So that evening, we together prayed and he gave his life to the Lord in the session. That started a healing in his heart and that he had an anger problem. And she was very, very hurt from that anger problem. And they have, they have been separated for nearly five months. And he told her, he gave his life to the Lord. Of course, she's saying, well, we'll just wait and see. Is this, is this really real? And so for the last four months, I've been walking with him separately, not just counseling, but just working with him spiritually and mentoring spiritually. She called last week, and they're moving back together. And it was just so happy because, uh, you, you know, God did that. God, God healed that anger in him and brought that relationship back together. So we get more out of that than they probably do. So I just thank you guys for, you know, wanting to be a part of that. It's a great ministry. It is very helpful. There's a lot of need out there. And I just ask God to bless each one of you. Thank you, Terry and Carrie. Yeah, um, Jesus promises where two or three gather in his name, he's there in their midst. And um, those of you who are couples working with couples, even if both the people that you're meeting with are clueless about the Lord, um, you've got that two or three in the room gathered for his purpose. Uh, um, his purpose is to transform us into the character of Christ. And everything we do in the Lake Counseling Ministry here, everything you do as you interact with people can be focused on that purpose um, of God, that we, that we gather in his name for his sake, uh, under his authority and his power. So it's a, it's a great thing. Thank you all so much. 
Um, I just want to reframe a little bit the, um, the steps in the EFT. Um, there were three stages that she defines. And I personally think that um, Susan Johnson, as awesome as she is, um, has kind of skipped over understanding about releasing and the importance of separation in bonding. And um, um, she, when she, the, that first stage, I think she calls it de-escalation. I believe she's actually, unfortunately, put two different tasks in the same stage. And I think it'll be more helpful for you if you think about um, the first stage as being establishing a connection. Um, and, and she talks about doing that, establishing a sense of, of empathy or connection with each of the partners in the, the uh, couple, um, establishing that sense of bond or attachment. But then um, she also talks about de-escalation and, and, and defining what the, what the issue is. And actually, that s seems to me to be better as, configured as, as the second stage. Once you establish a connection and a sense of safety, then some of the negative feelings can be brought out into the, into the um, arena of the counseling relationship. That's where mourning comes in. That's where we, we begin to activate those old wounds or the fears, the feelings that have been problematic in the relationship. And that's where we begin to be able to, to name the, the craziness. Um, for, for most couples, my deepest fears and my deepest needs are activated by my partners. And often, um, the things that I'm doing to desperately get my need met actually serve to activate my partner's deep fears. Uh, let me just give, give an example. For me, my deep fear is, and I was the third of fourth kids. My parents were born in, I mean, my parents were married in 52. My sister was born in 53. My brother was born in 54. I was born in 55. And another brother born in 58. So, and both my parents were working full time. And, you know, I think I grew up feeling like my needs didn't count because, you know, there was just a lot going on and not enough time or energy to go around. And so I came into the marriage fearing sort of this fear that my needs don't count. And so, sure enough, um, my wife would at times neglect to meet my needs. And so, I would make an attempt to get her attention about that. Well, it turns out her deep fear that she came into the relationship with is that she was inadequate, that she would be seen as a failure or that she would not be seen as competent. So, when I would flag her about my needs, hey, you know, you missed this or I need this, what she would hear is, you're not enough for me. You're inadequate. So what she would do is to respond by telling me why I shouldn't feel that way. Like why she's so busy with the kids, my needs are not as important as their needs. Or her day was so busy that I shouldn't feel the way I feel. So of course, she's trying to get her need for adequacy, which I hear as, your needs are not important. So I get louder with my needs, which she hears as more criticism you know, and it's just this crazy cycle. And um, the thing that EFT helps to do is to illuminate or, you know, bring that craziness to light so that we realize that we're both, um, in, in attempting to defend ourselves against our pain, we're actually creating pain. And that once we let our defenses down and actually express the pain instead of trying to, to address the pain, <laughs> Um, we actually find tenderness and warmth reestablished in the relationship. And we find ourselves able again to reconnect.
Okay, um, let's, it's um, about time for us to start our um, afternoon session. And um, you are really going to be blessed by what Janet has to share. Janet Nicholas is an LPC, as well as a licensed professional counselor, as well as a um, certified drug and alcoholism. What's the, is it Kadak? Is that what it is? What's that? That was the old one. What's the new one? Licensed Chemical Dependency Counselor, LCDC. Is that right? Yeah. Sounds like what? A bad rock group. <laughs> so, um, Janet and I have worked together for many years. We first became acquainted when, when we were asked to, to be on um, a TV show together. That was pretty cool. City Under Siege, way back when. Um, but Janet is somebody who has a wonderful sense of humor. She's brilliant. Um, and she thinks I'm brilliant, too. So, <laughs> Right, Janet? <laughs> um, she's beautiful, too. So um, you guys are really going to be blessed. Janet has lived through um, some real uh, hardship in her life. And she may tell you a little bit about that. But what she's done is to use her story and her, the experiences of her life to... Um, reach out to God and to reach out to others and bless them. And that's what I love about Janet and her husband, Scott. Um, come on up, Janet. And um, I'd like to just pray for you in our session, if that's okay. Cool. And um, then you can take it from there. God, we just thank you for your plan for using everything that we give over to you to, um, to change us to soften our hearts toward you, to soften our hearts toward others, to make us um, a blessing. And Lord, I just thank you for Janet and her willingness to share from her um, experience and from her wisdom and knowledge. And Lord, we just pray you bless her, use her words in all of our lives to equip us to be better ministers of your grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you on? Are you on? Is your is your if you turn on your box, you have to turn it on. Push that little button. Up. There you go. You will in just a moment. You'll okay. come on. But I want to be on now. Oh, I am. Okay. <laughs> you know, part of the problem with technology for me is it is just not fast enough. Even after we got high-speed internet, I'm like, okay, I'm done. This thing, I get up and leave the computer. I just don't have any patience for computers. Is anybody else like that? And the last time I did a talk here, seriously, can you get me some Kleenex? And is there a bottle of water? Is this, can I use this water? Um, I did a, I, oh, I think there's one here. Oh, okay. Well, I don't want Carrie's then. Thank you. But anyway, um, yeah, last year, thank you. Ooh, that one's cold. Last year, I did a long presentation on step families. And what y'all are going to be hearing later, the, the next talk that I do, is a very, very shortened version. That is such a complex issue. Separation and divorce and step families is so complex. There are just so many things. So we're really going to be hitting the highlights today. But when I did it last time, I was trying to get these videos embedded in my presentation and it sounded like some kind of movie because it took, I think, five or six computer specialists and it still wouldn't work two days before. The day before it still didn't work, I came up here and nothing would work. 
And the, the computer guy in the back, he said, oh, don't worry. He said, just show up 30 minutes before, and we'll get it all fixed in the morning. I was like, no, you know, this is going to be a six-hour presentation, and it's got to work. Um, so it somehow, some way, my husband is such a computer genius. Somehow he, he got it to work, and it worked on the first video, and then the rest of the presentation didn't work. So it was just crazy, and I think Satan just loves to rattle my cage with technology. But uh, I've got like three backups. I've brought three backups. I've got it all under control. God's going to, and God's the best PowerPoint of all, isn't he? He doesn't need no technology. Pardon my French. But anyway, um, welcome everybody, and I know it's after lunch, and I know that there's the potential that people might get sleepy. <laughs> so I do have a song and dance routine stuck in here somewhere. Um, so keep looking for that. And, but the topic that I am going to be discussing today is very difficult. And typically when I speak on this, even if I'm speaking to a group of lay counselors or people that are working with people that are going through this issue, a lot of times it'll stir up your own stuff. Um, because most of us in the room have probably been touched by divorce a separation or divorce in one way or another. Maybe we've had friends going through it. Maybe our parents went through it. Um, you know, maybe we've had aunts or uncles. But typically, because it is such a profound thing in our society today, we do have a lot of divorce. And this has been going on for a long time. When I got divorced, that was about 30 years ago, right at 30 years ago. And it was rampant 30 years ago. Everybody was getting divorced. Um, my husband and I both married as Christians. We were very devout Christians, um, and I could not believe what had happened in my life. If anybody would have told me that was going to happen, I would have said, you got to be nuts. And, um, you know, and I think in the Christian world, I mean, it makes it so much harder if you're a Christian. Because Christian, as Christians, we really don't believe in divorce. We know what the scripture says about divorce, but it happens. And you know, it happened back in Jesus' day. I mean, this was rampant back in Jesus' day. I don't know if y'all know that or not, but it was happening a lot. And it was a terrible, it was, it was far worse, I would say, back then. Not that divorce is not horrible now, but back then women had very little rights. And so when a woman was divorced, she was in a big pickle. Unless she had a huge dowry, and a lot of fathers, if they could do it, they would give their daughters a big dowry so that it would ward off divorce. Because when a husband divorced his wife, she took her dowry with her. So some dads would do that to prevent their daughters from getting a divorce. And then it was five years, for five years, a husband could come back and claim his wife. So no one wanted to marry her. So for five years, unless she was, you know, grew up in a wealthy family and her parents could help her, it could be just horrific and then she was an outcast but I have to tell you that I mean 30 years ago in my own church and I went to a fairly large church and we had many wonderful Christian church friends we were part of a young couples group I mean I didn't hear from anybody no one in my church I, I heard from one couple and they stood by me through the whole thing and and it was a lot to go through for them um, so it was, not only did I feel like, and this is the thing with divorce that we'll be talking about, is the losses are so magnified. It's not just that you're losing your spouse. Um, I felt like I lost my church family, and basically I did. I just ended up leaving the church. So, but I think for the Christian world, 
we are still, even today, there is much stigma with getting divorced. And I think getting a divorce, and I think that's good that there's stigma attached with it. I don't think we should ever take it lightly because it is a, um, it's a horrific journey to go through, and I wouldn't wish it off on anyone. But sometimes there are reasons why people get a divorce. But I think as Christians, even today, we can be judgmental about that. And you know what? I was one of those people 30 years ago. I remember as clear as day sitting behind a, a young woman in church, and I was sitting behind her, and I thought, well, I guess she didn't pray hard enough. I guess she didn't try hard enough. You know, she would have worked harder. Her I mean, what's up with that? And boy, did God make me eat those words about a year later because I was sitting in the similar pew alone. And it was something that I never, ever, it's never a place that I thought I would be. Guys, we never know what's going on in people's homes. We do not know what goes on in a person's marriage. We have no clue. But you know what? God does. We have no clue. So we can judge and go, you know what? You didn't try hard enough. And you know what? This and you know what? That. Nobody, and I'm not even going to get into the details of what all was going on in mine. I still don't know all the details today. I cannot stand up here and tell you exactly why my husband divorced me. I don't know. You know what? That's between him and God. I racked my brain. I cried. I begged. I pleaded. Um, but I never really truly found out. Now, I have some good ideas. But you know what? I do not know really totally what went on with him. I've been a therapist for a long time. I have some great theories. I have some great ideas. I know the family that he grew up in. But you know, guys, the bottom line is, is that I married a very, very... Um, wounded person an incredibly wounded person and I could just hear a little bit about what y'all were talking about with the EFT and Lord have mercy I married a wounded person and it wasn't that I didn't come into that marriage with a few wounds myself even though I was a very young bride um, I still had my own family of origin wounds but guys we have to be careful about looking at a couple and blaming one or the other or blaming the couple for not trying hard enough we have no idea I never told some people what all was going on in my marriage. People couldn't have handled it. I never even told my parents everything. They couldn't have handled it. So uh, there was addiction going on, and there ended up being abuse in the end. But there were multiple addictions that I found out that were going on. And so I couldn't even get those words out to my Christian friends. So, And we lived in a small community. So a lot of the people did know what was going on because they saw things going on out in the community. But it was a very, very difficult time. But anyway, you know, God's so amazing. He just loves taking what's bad and turning it into something good. He loves doing that. It is his favorite thing. And I truly thought, guys, I mean, I came to a place um, before our divorce actually happened where I had made a decision, and Satan had taught me into this. And this is the thing, guys, that when you're counseling people, you have to give them encouragement that God has a plan. No matter what their spouse does, no matter what they do, no matter what ends up happening, God has a plan in all of it. He just does. So when I look back and I was getting ready, I just was, you know, throwing some PowerPoint uh, present um, slides together for today. It was like, wow, this journey of over 30 years that I've been through. Because a year before we separated, well, it was actually about six months before we separated, I became so depressed, and this is another thing that you, won't, that you may not notice if you're not really paying attention because people can cover it up really well. 
But I was so depressed, my parents did not even know. But I came to the point after about 10 months of going through all of this drama and trauma and all these things that were unfolding in my life that I'd never even experienced before, and I did not tell anyone. I told nobody. No one. Not my parents, not my sister, not my best friend. I was too ashamed. This is the other thing that goes along with people that are going through a separation or are considering a separation or divorce is that a lot of times it carries so much shame. But I finally got to where I came to the conclusion that if my marriage ended, that God could never use me. Now, that's a lie straight out of the pit of hell. But I had come to the conclusion that God was never going to be able to use me, that I had ruined everything, that I'd married the wrong person, that I married against God's will, or either I wouldn't be in this mess right now. And I finally just came to, after going through a, probably about six months of severe depression, um, saying, you know what? And I had a baby by this time. We waited five years to have a child. And I said, you know what? I can't not leave my son here. And I don't want him to grow up knowing this. I know a way out. Because I wasn't going to divorce. And guys, I, I truly came to the point in my horrific state of depression that I was going to kill myself. I was going to kill my son first, and then I was going to kill myself. So I bought into that lie. And do you know that I was one day away from doing that? It still makes me cry after all these years because God has been so amazing but I, I want to tell you all this because I want you to understand the kind of shame that people will have and the secrets that they will keep uh, from their church family because they don't want to be judged they just don't want people to know the the things that are going on in their lives but I was one day away from doing this and I went to I actually went to go to a counselor he was not there I saw someone else, and unfortunately, this counselor really minimized what was going on. She said, you know, I really think maybe you're making too big of a deal of your husband's drinking. I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe I am. You know what? He keeps telling me that I am the problem and that I am making a big deal out of everything. And you know what? Maybe he's right. So I kind of continued on with my thoughts of, well, I just need to move on. You know, I just need to go home. And so what ended up happening was I went back because of threats of abuse. I went back and I laid money on the table to pay for that counseling session. It was a wonderful Christian counseling um, organization. That, and um, I laid the money there and the, the um, head guy was back. He was really the person that I wanted to see. He wrote an article every week in the newspaper. I'd, known, I'd read his article since I was a kid in the local newspaper, and I thought I could talk to that man. And so um, he was a former Nazarene pastor. So anyway, he said, I put my hand on the doorknob to leave that day. Guys, this is so the Holy Spirit. There is no way I hadn't told anyone what I was going to do the next day. I, and I didn't tell the therapist either that I'd seen a few days before. I had my hand on the doorknob to leave that counseling agency. And he said, hi. He said, how are you? I said, well, I'm, o I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm going to kill my baby tomorrow myself, but I'm okay. And he said, hey, he said, can you come and sit down and talk to me for a minute? How many therapists do you know would do that? So I went and sat down. He said, what's going on? And all I told him was, I said, 
well, I, I said, it's been kind of rough. I said, my husband wants to divorce me. And he's like, oh. And I, I said, I, I just don't know how I'm going to take care of my son. And um, he said, well, um, Janet, he said, Jesus is going to take care of you and your son. And it was like somebody had pulled the scales off of my eyes, and I realized I was like, really? He goes, yeah, Jesus loves you, Janet. That's all I remember him telling me that day. He told me later, this was 25 years later when I went to go speak for this counseling agency for their 25th anniversary. He said, Janet, we had a long conversation that day. I don't remember anything except Jesus loves you, and he's going to take care of you and your son. And I really didn't think Jesus loved me at that point. I thought Jesus was terribly disappointed in me. And that was the beginning of a, a whole turnaround in my life. My husband did divorce me. Um, it was a very chaotic time, which as I'm going through the presentation, you'll see why. But, um, but what came out of that, guys, was a whole ministry. This was before divorce care came along. It was called Transitional Adjustment Groups for the Divorced. Uh, his mother, the, counseling, the counselor that I spoke to, his mother had gone through a divorce at 55 years old. So I was 25, she was 55, and it's like God put us together, and she was my mentor. And she asked me if I would help her start these groups, and I said, well, I can't talk in front of people. <laughs> I said, so I'll help you organize it, but then I'm out the first night, but I'll help you put it together. I got up and started talking that night, and I haven't shut up since. <laughs> so, and God, God just helped um, us to put together a program with the help of a, a book and an author that we found because there was nothing like that back in 1981. There was nothing out there. The church wasn't touching it. And this is still a controversial subject for the church today as our step families. But anyway, let's talk a little bit about the journey. And um, so what happens is, is that, guys, the first thing that starts to happen, and sometimes if you have people come to you, they may be thinking about separating or they may already be separated. This is a very tumultuous time. Um, it, it can be very, very confusing. It can be very conflicting. But typically, more often than not, one person is more interested in, in getting a divorce than the other. Also, typically what happens is, is that one person's been thinking about it for a long time before they get to this point. And oftentimes for the other person, it's like a total shock, like it was for me. Even though I look back now, it's kind of like, duh, could I not see this coming? You know, this was coming. Um, but there's also, for one party who wants out, there's a tremendous stage of relief that starts to happen for them. They've been typically thinking about it for a long time. They may, may be engaged in an affair. And so they are just like, man, I'm out of here and it feels good. While the other person is just floored and devastated and trying to pick themselves up off the floor. So um, it's very perplexing to the shocked spouse. They don't understand it. They're like, how can you be so calm, cool, and be so, listen, it's going to be okay. You know, it's not going to be okay for the other person. So for the children, this is another key point. For the children involved, which a lot of parents get confused about this because they'll say, you know what, our kids are really doing quite well. It's shocking, but our kids are doing really well. You will see some kids acting out or some teenagers acting out initially. But some children will hide it because they see their parents in such a state, or at least one of their parents in such a state, that they will sit back and they'll watch the movie, they'll watch the show, and they'll hold back all of their emotions because, you know what, one person's already left. 
what's going to happen if I lose my mom? You know, my mom's crying herself to sleep every night. She looks horrible. She doesn't eat. But they will hold all that in, and they will try to be actually very good uh, to keep that parent calm and to try to not rock the boat. And then later on, maybe six months or a year later on, you'll see the kids start to act out. You will see them to start doing their grief work. So depending upon the age, how that comes out can certainly vary. The other thing to understand for children is, is that um, the day a parent leaves is really the divorce for them. They don't understand lawyers. I mean, even teenagers don't really understand the legal side of things. They don't understand all that. I've heard, parent, I've heard um, adult stories for years of when their parent left, of when one parent left, when their mom left or when their dad left. They're still talking about it when they're adults. They don't really, well, when did they divorce? I don't know. It was somewhere around, you know. I, but my dad left when I was seven years old on my seventh birthday. So it can be very vivid for them. So the confusion and conflict. And I wanted to give you this piece because if y'all are working with people going through separation, you'll even see this in the divorce stages. Is this dumper-dumpy um, role that, that begins to, to take place. And it will help you to understand some of the confusion that's going on and why these couples seem to do this uh, back and forth. So, but what happens is, and I've taken this from, this was the class that, um, that uh, Christine Scott and I started over 30, well, about 30 years ago. And it was from the author, Dr. Bruce Fisher, Rebuilding When Your Relationship Ends, and that is in your uh, bibliography. So, um, this book was not a Christian book. Bruce died about 12 years ago, and I'm not sure what happened. I tried to talk to Bruce. I knew he was dying from cancer. I couldn't get hold of him. But there are scriptures in his latest revision now. So I'm thinking that Bruce must have become, must have become a Christian. Um, but he coined this dumper-dumpy roles, and it really helps to describe what goes on. The dumper is obviously the person who says, I'm out of here. I'm done with the marriage. The dumpy is the person who is being told this news. And there are two different ways that this typically goes because there can be a healthy dumper. There can be a person that says, you know what, you are not going to hit me again. I am not going to put up with your addiction. You know, uh, either you go get help or either our marriage is over. And that person's been getting help. They've been going to groups. They've been in Al-Anon. They've been coming to or celebrate recovery. They have a therapist, and they have been working hard on their stuff. So that's a healthy dumper. And likewise, there can be a healthy dumpy. But there's also the unhealthy dumper and the unhealthy dumpy. And those are people that say, you know what, I don't know. You know, I'm just kind of bored with you, you know. Or they've gone out and they found somebody else because they really can't leave the marriage unless they have someone else because God forbid that they live alone or that they work on themselves, you know, and try to figure out what's going on. So this dumper dump, dumpy thing will go back and forth, and part of what happens in this situation is typically a dumper will feel guilty because they will see the pain that they're causing. Even if they're having an affair, even if they're on to something else, they will often see that a person, that they're hurting their loved ones. They're hurting their spouse, they're hurting their children, so they feel guilty. So they will make, um, they'll say, well, let's go out and eat dinner. Well, you know, why don't I take you to a show? Well, the other person's thinking, there's hope. They're rethinking the situation. And so they get their hope up, and they're trying harder now, and then only to find out later, they're still continuing the affair. They're still going to file for divorce. And it, it can be a very confusing um, scenario that keeps going back and forth. 
What also happens, and this will happen several times before a couple divorces and even after, is that people will switch roles. After the dumpy, after their shock wears off and their anger, because typically a dumpy is angry, they feel out of control, they don't know what the heck to do, they're frightened out of their minds, their whole life has been turned upside down. Sometimes they'll start to work through some of that grief and then they'll just go, you know what, maybe I don't want you back. You know what, now that I'm looking at this whole thing, this has been pretty sick and dysfunctional and I've put up with this and I've put up with that. And you know what, maybe I... Maybe this is for the best. Maybe you do know what you're talking about. And lo and behold, the dumper will go, now hold on just a minute. Well, you know, or maybe the affair's not going so well. Or maybe living in an apartment. Maybe they're starting to miss their children. They don't see their children every day. It's like, you know, the grass is not that much greener on the other side of the septic tank. And so they'll start rethinking the situation. Well, well, maybe, well maybe now I want, maybe we should work on things. And the dumpy will go, Phew. I don't think so. They've gotten a little bit stronger. They've worked through some of the grief. And then eventually, though, sometimes the dumpy will say, you know what, maybe, maybe we can work on things now. So this may be, see, seem like insanity to those of you who have never been through it, but this is part of what goes on, and I just think that dumper dumpy thing helps to explain it the best. The stages of grieving, guys, this is so important. This is another thing that you will see people go in and out of and up and down. It's the shock, the denial the anger, and guys, this goes beyond anger. This is a thing that as counselors we have to watch for because people do, when they see what's happening to their lives and they're starting to have to put their home on the market or they're, watching, they're putting their children to bed every night sobbing and hysterical, asking where the other parent is, people can do crazy things. I did crazy things. I'm not even going to tell you all what I did. But people will do crazy things and uh, things that they normally would not do because they feel so out of control. Or if they find out their spouse is having an affair, they can do some very scary things. The sadness, the bargaining, acceptance, and forgiveness. And guys, you can do those grieving stages in a period of 10 seconds. You can do it over 10 years. Some people never finish doing their grief work. They, for whatever reason, choose not to, or they have so much previous woundedness that they don't do it. Um, so the adults, the adult children, teens and children, they all go through tremendous grieving. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people think, hey, my kids are grown now, we're getting a divorce, they'll be fine. No, that is not what the research has shown. In fact, sometimes adult children are more blown off their foundation uh, than younger children because that's all they know, they have known their whole entire lives. When you're 30-something years old and your parents call you up and say, you know, oh, by the way, we're going to get a divorce, um, it can be, it can just be mind-blowing for an adult. And I've heard lots of those stories in my office over the years, too. Um, there's also a secondary grieving that happens. Uh, a lot of people say, well, you know, it took two years for our divorce to get finalized. I'm done. But that is not true. There's a secondary stage of grieving that happens after the papers are actually signed. It's not as long and not quite as deep as the initial stages of grieving when you're going through the separation and the divorce process, but it does hit people hard, and people will always tell me that's not going to happen. You know, I've, we've been working on this long enough. It's just going to be a done deal, but that is not true. Um, it takes about two years to work through the ending of a divorce. And guys, that's if people are working hard on it. That's if they get into something like a support group, like divorce care, um, 
seeing a therapist, you know, doing some lay counseling uh, with you folks at church. People do not believe this because after about nine months, in the nine-month to 12-month range, people start to feel better. They start realizing and they start getting over some of the shock and the, the horror and the fallout of the divorce. And so they are like, woohoo, you know, I'm done. But there is so much growth that needs to take place in between 12 months and two years. Um, again, I can uh, attest to that because I married, I remarried at about, I was, um, my ex and I had been divorced right at two years when I remarried. So I met my husband right about at the 18-month mark, and I'll tell you all more about that later. Had no intentions of getting married again, nor did my husband. That's the only way that we uh, met and kind of went out every once in a while is we both said, listen, we, neither one of us have any intentions of getting married, so if we can just be friends. That's actually how we started out. Um, but it takes really two years to grieve a major loss. And a lot of people, because this is so painful, they want to be done with it. And the best way, really, to be done with your grieving is to find somebody else. It's not the healthiest way, but boy, talk about a salve and an antidote. Uh, when people start dating too soon, typically what happens is their recovery starts to shut down. And they get focused on that new relationship. They have all this unresolved stuff. We'll be talking more about how this works in the step family presentation. But their recovery starts to slow down. They get focused on this new relationship. It feels good to have acknowledgement from somebody else. It feels good to be loved. It feels good to be noticed again. It's like, okay, I'm not a loser. And that's why a lot of times you will see clients want to jump in too soon into new relationships. They want to be validated. And after being dumped or dumping someone. So they begin dating too soon. And, you know, guys, the effects on the children... When people start dating and dating a lot of different people, the kids are still in recovery mode. And so they have more people coming in and out of their lives. And I'm just, you know, guys, I'm just a strong believer in people not moving in together. That is so confusing for children. It's not really what God wants. Um, and most of the time, though, people do it out of convenience sake for financial reasons. And, you know, they don't want to be alone. But it's, it is so unhealthy for the relationship, and it's unhealthy for the children. It's very confusing. But the more people you have coming into your, your children's lives, the more confusing it gets. So, um, but I wanted to give you this bucket metaphor, and we're going to end right here and then open it up for some uh, questions and answers, hopefully some answers. But uh, this was another uh, wonderful piece that I took out of Bruce's book and that I've shared with so many people over the years and I love it it's kind of humorous and people kind of chuckle when I tell it but Bruce's theory was is that we're all born into this world with a bright shiny bucket and he says you know depending upon what's going on within our family you know when we're newborns we might have some people putting some good stuff in our bucket you know or a mom and dad love us and they think we're so cute and they come to the crib all the time and they take us out and they actually change our diaper and feed us and we got lots of good stuff coming in our buckets. But, you know, some people, even when they're newborns, they are born into a situation where there's been a trauma or where there's been a wound. There may have been a baby that died before they were born. There may be an ill child. There may be an alcoholic in the house. And so there are not so many good things coming in the bucket. And not only may there not be so many good things coming in the bucket, but the bucket may start getting some dings in it. Because, you know what, people don't come to the crib quite as often. 
for this baby. But then we have more things that happen. You know, did any of y'all go to school, start to school, and was any, were any of y'all ever teased? Just wondering. I was teased. I was called horse mouth because I loved horses. That's another thing that I do. I'm an equine-assisted psychotherapist, so I use horses in counseling sessions. But all the kids knew that I loved horses, and my teeth were kind of big for my head at that time, so I got called horse teeth all the time I was growing up. You know, kids have a wonderful way of humiliating each other. So, you know, you get a few dings in your bucket here and there, and people are putting some bad stuff in. Maybe you had a great teacher one year, and she just put lots of wonderful things in your bucket. Then you get to your teen years. Then you get to your adult years. You know, and you have some relationships, and you have some, maybe some good relationships, maybe some bad ones, but then when you get a divorce, you've got a giant gash in your bucket. And what a lot of people will do is they will struggle to get some things going in their bucket. But you know what? It just all, it's, it's like a sieve. It just all comes out. you got to keep having more people in your life, doing more things, make more money, whatever. And so what Bruce said is you have to take time to repair your bucket. And as Christians, we all know what that means. You know, we've got to take time to get alone with God and to be with him and to get help and to get the healing that we need and to understand what happened in that marriage. Guys, I can tell you everything my ex-husband did wrong. I, I mean, I don't know all of it, but I can tell you a bunch of stuff. And that's what I said for about a year. And you know what? Everybody in our small town pretty much supported me because they knew a lot of wrong stuff that he did too. But you know, God kept tapping me on the shoulder saying, Janet, you got to take a look at your part. Even though I tried as hard as I can to be a good Christian wife, I was a wimp. I was a passive wimp, and I did not. I was really not the woman I think that God wanted me to be. And that's why we hit it off, because I was very passive, and he was not. So it worked for a while. And so God really wanted me to take inventory on what my part was. And I'm telling you, that was gut-wrenching work, because for a whole year I invested in blaming him and looking at all the horrible things that I could obviously see that he had done and the fallout of that. But little by little, God just kept encouraging me to keep digging in and keep working through what my part was. And when I came out of that, guys, I mean, my bucket looked pretty darn good. It was painful work. It was, it was I cannot tell you how gut-wrenching it was. But God's favorite thing is taking the bad and turning it into something good. That's what he loves doing. So that's the other thing that when you're working with people that are going through divorce or they are divorced... And they want to just focus on, and this is pretty basic stuff, but I can't emphasize it enough. You have to let them talk about that a little bit. They need to vent that and get that out. And then you have to keep gently bringing them back to, what do you think God's trying to teach you, though, through this about you? You know, we've got to keep inquiring of God. What is it that God wants you to realize and learn about you? Because we will go back and do the same thing. I've watched people for 30 years do this. They will go back and they will marry either their opposite, their exact opposite, or either they will marry almost an identical person. We are built for familiarity. So we got to change what's familiar. we got to change to God's familiar. We've got to change our hearts to what God wants us to do and who he wants us to be. And I've seen it happen over and over. And remember, guys, 180 degrees from unhealthy is still unhealthy. It's just over here. And, you know, the... The, uh, that's an old John Bradshaw statement. But the, the thing about that is, is an extreme uh, example of this is it's the abused woman who was beaten to a pulp, and she finally gets out of that relationship, and she meets and marries this kind, gentle, very passive man. 
And so he doesn't beat her up, but if she makes him angry, he won't speak to her for six months. So 180 degrees from unhealthy is still unhealthy, and that's how people get sucked in to a new relationship is they are looking typically for somebody who's very opposite. But opposite can still be very unhealthy. God's looking for a 360. You know, God wants us to come full circle back to him. And the most ultimate thing that I believe, too, that God wants us to do is he wants to know that he's number one. You know, that's really where it has to go. And I'll, I'll never forget when I was um, sitting on my bed one night and it had been, I, my son was two years old by this time, and I was like, it had been a horrible day. Y'all know the terrible twos if you've had children. And I was like, God, I'm going to kill that kid. I'm going to, I can't do this. And it had been a rough day at work. I had a very difficult boss. And I was sitting on the edge of my bed, and I was like, you know, I could call my girlfriend, Lori, but I really need a man to talk to. And I'm tired of talking to Lori. Lori and I have talked to each other to death. You know, I just need, I don't want to date anybody I, I just like want to rent a man for a little bit because God knows I'm never getting married again and I am not going to go on a date. And do you know what God whispered? I mean, it still gives me cold chills. He said, Janet, I'm here. He said, talk to me. I'll listen. And he did. And I was like, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, and I'm like, you are always going to be number one in my life no matter what you are my ultimate relationship and, and everything has to flow through you. But guys, the way that I tell divorced people that they are probably ready for a relationship, and I'd actually gotten to this point because, again, that was the premise that my husband and I dated on or were going out together on is, I don't need to be married. You know what? I've got God. I've got me. Is it kind of tough being a single mom? I didn't make a lot of money. I worked for a good company, but I didn't make a lot of money. Was it tough? But you know what? Even though I made $1,000 net a month, that's what I made at Dow Chemical, $1,000 net a month, I was putting a little bit of money in savings every month. I mean, God so provided. I could talk all day long about God's provision through that time, but he so provided. And, but, guys, that's really when people are ready for a relationship because it takes the desperation out. It takes, the, oh, oh, my gosh, maybe this is going to be the one. Maybe this will be my relationship. You know, maybe we're going to get married. It takes all those expectations off. When you know that God is number one in your life, and, yeah, you may be lonely sometimes, but that loneliness eventually, it's part of the grieving stages, and that loneliness eventually dissipates to where you come to a really a, a place of wholeness. And if God wants that for you, you're fine with it, and if he doesn't, you're fine with that too. So that's how you know, and that's how you can tell your counselees that they've really gotten to a healthy place, is that they don't feel that desperation that I have got to have a date, I've got to have a man, I've got to have a wife, any of that. Is that clear as mud? And this is the ultimate that God wants, is Jeremiah 29, 11. We all know that scripture. For I know the plans I have for you, they are plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So I love that scripture. But anyway, I'm going to be quiet now. Uh, time for questions. If you would, um, if you have a question, go ahead and write it down. We may not get to all of them, um, but I'll start um, with those who have their hands raised. But while you're waiting to, to ask your question, write it down, and then I can take them up to Janet, and we'll get to them at the next session if we don't get to them now. What can you share with us 
about how we can tell we're not dealing with a normal argument, we're not dealing with a normal situation, and this person might be a day away from a huge crisis? Well, it is to directly ask the question. This is huge. It's just to say, you know what? This is something that I, I really like to check in with people about. And, you know, have you had any thoughts about hurting yourself? Have you had any thoughts about that at all? And most of the time people will tell you, oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Absolutely. So just directly ask the question and, and say it in a soft voice and kind of say it in an inviting voice and a caring voice, of course. But I really did want to check in with you. And if they put their head down and just kind of say, mm, no, and just say, really? Are you sure? Because I'm very concerned for you. you. You came in today looking really sad. You sound like you're really going through some struggles. And sometimes if people will not acknowledge that, I'll just, I will tell them a scripture. I will tell them certain things. Say, listen, I want you to know this is not the end. God has a plan for your life. No matter how bleak it looks right now, no matter how bad it looks right now, God has a plan for your life. Don't ever, ever doubt that. When you're talking to somebody and it triggers something in you from your past, how do you deal with that? When it triggers something from your past? Well, you know, sometimes you may just have to take a deep breath and uh, do what Cindy Sunday says over the Pregnancy Assistance Center, a flare prayer, you know, which is, oh, God, please help me now. <laughs> and, and, you know, what you have to do is you... You just have to say, okay, God, help bring me back into, in, into this situation right now. I have to be here for this person. But when that session is over, and even if, you, even if it's so overwhelming, make an excuse to excuse yourself. Let them get to a good stopping place and say, you know what? I have got to run, go get a drink of water. My mouth is really dry. I will be right back. Get up, walk out, excuse yourself take a few deep breaths and go back in and sit down and start over but then you have to call somebody after that session is over and you need to make an appointment for yourself so to me that's never a bad thing because we all have I mean I've been doing this for a long time sometimes people say something and it'll trigger something in me that's not bad it's God's way of tapping us on the shoulder and saying you got a little bit more work I want you to do here I was just wondering when you were talking about the effects on children, what, I mean, like, like when they're a teenager, like elementary school, understand, but like, like your son, he was one years old. How did yes. he process? I mean, did he have to process the divorce? Oh, yeah. Because both of our children, my husband's daughter was about, um, she was around 16 or 18 months old when her mother left. And my son was um, 11 months old the day we separated. So neither one of them have any memory at all of us being married. Uh, there really aren't very many family pictures, you know, because it just ended at that point. Those family pictures ended. But my son grieved that from the get-go, from the time he was old enough to talk, he would say, Mommy, why? Why? You know, why don't you and Daddy live together? I mean, it was, I cried myself to sleep many, many nights. Because I couldn't answer all of his questions. But I just asked God and I worked with my therapist on how to talk to him. And actually, my therapist taught me to work with him from the time he was an infant. 
So when I would put him to bed at night, I mean, one night it was a horrible scene um, when his dad dropped him off. It was horrible. He cried for an hour after his dad left. And I rocked him to sleep, and I started telling a little bit about why this was happening. He went right to sleep. So my therapist really taught me to practice before he could even speak. But you have to, sometimes you have to talk with someone and get some ideas about what do I say to my children. Because it's very key. You cannot run down the other parent. You're, you're uh, crucifying that child when you do that. And you just cannot talk. And it's really hard. I mean, it's really, really hard. Well, I, if I can only just tell you a little bit more about this, then you'd understand that. Because the children do form, um, I mean, kids are good. They're manipulative. They try to work, even in a marriage, you know, kids are, I say they give them a handbook in the crib and they hone their craft from, you know, <laughs> by two or three weeks old, a kid knows how to get you to come to the crib, you know, two or three weeks old and I just say they hone their craft after that. But, um, but you have to be very careful about what you say to your children and you have to keep praying, talking with other people who have been through it, talk with your therapist about how do I word this, are some of the questions that the children are asking. And you can always say to a child, honey, you know what, I need some time to think about that. Can I get back with you? But every year until my son was 16, we had the divorce talk. Every year, and the questions got harder. But he was a very intuitive, sensitive little boy. Beautiful. Thank you, Janet. Is there anything else you want to share before we take a little break? I don't think so. You're awesome. I think I probably said enough. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, let's uh, um, let's take a, a short break. Um, make it ten minutes, and um, there's Janet has a wealth of information to share with you about dealing with step families. So um, be quick and come back, and we'll get more of Janet.